Folge is Fehlroiv. Welcome to the first episode in our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline. And I'm Caroline White. In this episode, we'll be interviewing Mark Garavan, who's a lecturer in social care at the Galway Mayo Institute of Technology. Mark has a doctorate in the sociology of environmental activism, and he's the author of the book Compassionate Activism. He's also a FASTA director. Mark's particular focus is on human ecological relations. We talked together about the reasons behind the worrying level of anger and hatred that's being expressed by many people at the moment. We also discussed the effects of digital technology and social media on our society and ways to build a vision of a more positive future. We started by asking Mark to give us some thoughts on the tumultuous times that we're living through at the moment. Well, I mean, obviously the standout event of the last year is the COVID pandemic. And we've seen how that occurrence has so destabilised the functioning of the global system that people are engaging in practices that, I mean, a year ago we would have thought impossible for people within liberal democracies to accede to. Lockdowns was the language of what we would have thought of as totalitarian societies confined to home, the utter disruption, if not termination, of normal social interaction, the enforced migration of so much of our social existence into the online space with all of the implications of that, which are quite profound, actually, and will be long lasting. We know from history that pandemics are not occurrences that end when the disease abates, but they leave consequences. And they tend, if deep enough, to profoundly alter the societies that they impact on. So there's no reason why that won't be the case with us as well. And we can only guess at this stage what that might be. But the pandemic, in a way, is just an outer symptom of a deeper malaise, because of course the origin point of the pandemic is the encroachment onto free nature by human intrusion. So it's another signalling measure of the dysfunction that we are lurching into or are well into now at this point. And I think the last year, if it has shown anything, has shown the extreme fragility of our system and how it is increasingly under pressure to sustain itself. I think even the threats to democracy, the rise of far right politics, the visual theatrics of the capital being stormed in Washington, the way in which the Black Lives Matters protests were treated in a highly militaristic fashion by the United States are all serving up visual and tangible experiences of a system increasingly under pressure and increasingly unable to reproduce itself successfully. That makes this the interesting time that the Chinese warned us about that we're now living in, but an intriguing time because it looks as if it's one of those moments we're into now where you're looking at systemic reordering. That's a pivotal moment, historically, for sure. One of the characteristics of the past 12 months, and indeed it's been going on for a while, is almost not just how unhappy people are, but how angry and aggressive they've become. Could you give us some insights into where you think that's coming from and what the signs of it are and what's causing it? Something like that probably has multiple origin points, so it's not just one. But if we begin with the very big picture at the systems level, we could say that our system, in the sense the Western liberal capitalist system, 
is increasingly unable to function and increasingly unable to reproduce itself because it's hitting up against contradictions that it cannot resolve increasingly. So the most obvious one is, as the environmental movement had predicted for a long time, FASTA had been talking about for a long time, but it goes way back even to Schumacher and before, that you can't have constant economic growth within a finite planet, a finite resource base, and a finite physical land base from which to extract resources and to offload pollution outputs. And so the air itself, which is a kind of a pollution output zone, is increasingly carbonized to a point where it's retaining too much heat on the planetary surface. So the logic of our system is unable to resolve that problem. And the system itself is increasingly not functioning in terms of even delivering welfare or material well-being to more and more people, especially since, the, if you like, the neoliberal turn of the 1980s, increasing inequality. And that inequality is often met by repression from the state on those marginated elements within society. So even those who may once have thought of themselves as middle class, or people, in other words, who have completed third-level degrees and have aspirations to higher status employment, professional roles increasingly can't secure those kind of roles and they can find employment that is permanent so they're in a kind of precarious or precarious employment situation and their capacity to purchase houses is almost gone at this point because house asset price inflation is so extreme it has gone way beyond most people's incomes so for all kinds of reasons there's high stresses on the system and therefore people's belief in the system is eroding. And that's a historical phenomenon. I mean, we we can look at the dynamics of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and long before it actually collapsed, the belief of people in its functionality had long gone. So that while on the surface, people spoke the language of the state and the language of state politics, nobody on the ground believed in any of it and practiced what we sometimes call the resistance of the everyday opposition by just doing their own thing and subverting the system as best they could. And in a kind of a way, we're almost in that place again. Now, when the system begins to unravel, you have a couple of choices. You can change the system, and we can talk about that in a moment, because that's an important point. So if there's an alternative ready to go that better addresses the contradictions the system can't resolve and offers a viable hopeful alternative that people believe in, then that becomes a viable new system. But in the death throes of the old system, there tends to be a resistance holding onto it and maintaining it and the desperate attempt to maintain status quo. So that's what the far right function is in a way. The far right will purport to be in opposition to certain problems within the system, but at the same time maintain the system. It's not actually challenging the status quo. And the way this works is, is, is again, historically, with long precedence, what you have to do is, in order to explain why the system is not working, you have to find the anomalies. And the anomalies are generally found in finding outsider categories. And historically, in medieval Europe, the outsider category was those who were outside Christendom. So the Jewish people or nomadic people, or or women, certain categories of women. And you could say, that's the problem. The problem is the Jewish people. They're subverting the system in some way, or it's the nomads or the women. And so you get this constant cycle of pogroms or mass mob hysteria directed against outsider groups on the basis that something is not working. There may be famine or too much war. 
but to explain why that is the case and to maintain the system of monarchy, you find the outsiders. Now, we're in exactly the same boat, almost exactly the same. So now we have a situation where the system isn't working and we have the search for the outsider groups. And again, it's the immigrant, the migrant, the refugee, even in the far right, the Jewish motif is back again, current. So you can see this epitomized in the mob going into the capital. That could have been a picture from the 1400s, the 800s, people with pitchforks searching for witches. And they stormed the citadel. And you had almost exactly the same phenomenon as occurs throughout history. In other words, they get into the citadel and then they don't know what to do. They're literally bewildered as the mob was in the capital. It occupied the capital and some of the visual images of them rummaging in the Senate through people's desks, looking for paper. Presumably they thought they could find some secret document that would reveal all and they would have found the Eureka moment. And they didn't, they just stood around bewildered for the most part because there isn't a political project aligned to it. It's simply an outburst of, as you say, anger. And anger is just a psychological emotion to do with distress, confusion, uncertainty, frustration, and so on and so forth. And the trick with anger, if you are trying to maintain the system, is to channel it towards these acceptable outsider channels. I think the roots of anger, we can look to big macro explanations and micro ones. So the most macro one would be in the type of consumer capitalism that emerged in the West, certainly from the 1960s on. The 1960s was the generation that wanted to be authentic, individual, express themselves and so on. And this is colonized by capitalism to say we can sell you a lifestyle and sell you individuality. So the clothes you wear, that tells us about you, the car you drive, the music you listen to the books you read, the TV programs you follow. And this idea of consuming one's identity or finding one's identity through consumption then gets linked to the, what we might call the superego imperative. Freud had this idea that there was a superego, which was the socially mandated instruction that everyone received just by being socialized within a society. In the 19th century, it was repression and sacrifice. But for us, it's the opposite. And from the 1960s on, the superego is saying, be happy. So we live in a culture where we are mandated to be happy. We're tolerant of everything except unhappiness. And if you're unhappy, we will do everything to fix you. We'll either give you the red pill, we'll make you do yoga, we'll make you do mindfulness, we'll tell you to go on a holiday, we'll sell you a spa treatment, we'll tell you to consume more. We keep doing things until you're happy again. But this is all ideology. So too many people in the early 21st century don't actually experience this happiness. So they're very frustrated and they feel cheated. And this is what gives rise to anger. And of course, the assumed pleasure of the other is then dangled in front of them. They're told you're not happy because someone else is happy because they're getting the benefits that you should be getting. And the French actually have a perfect word for this that comes from Lacan, jouissance. The jouissance of the other, says Lacan, is what mobilizes the mob. The assumed happiness of someone else is what I get angry about. And then the micro explanation is simply that we now have the tools technologically to activate that anger and amplify it and channel it in the direction that we want. And this is where social media comes in because it allows echo chambers for angry and frustrated people so that they can speak to other angry and frustrated people, amplifying the effect of all of this bringing it up to high dough. And yet the paradox is that within the 21st century technological realms, 
of social media in all its forms, essentially medieval conversations are taking place because the actual conversation is where are the witches so we can get them and burn them so that the system can be restored to its purity. That's, that's it. And the witches can be the Mexicans or the Libyans or the women or the Jews or whoever you want to target. And pitchfork-wielding mobs seeking witches is as, as common a motif as any. And that's essentially what we have, but within its 21st century particularities. I'd love you to talk a little bit, if you can, about the whole way that the technology has been turned into people's houses. So this notion of parents teaching their children online or the addiction of social media and how over the past 12 months we've started to use it, basically. One of the most interesting theorists of social media is an American guy called Jaron Lanier. And one of his most interesting books was he wrote a book some years ago called You Are Not a Gadget. It kind of was a book that predated the big explosion of social media, but he could see then and identified in that book the potential risks that we now know to be the case. So, I mean, we know the social media model is essentially an addiction model. Its primary aim is firstly to addict you, and it does so by giving you the little dopamine hits of the likes and the feedback and so on and so forth. And you see people forever, they might post something and then immediately they begin the neurotic concern about how many people have looked at this and then how many people like it and how many people comment on it. Basically, as social primates, we're getting tiny little dopamine shots every time because we're getting a personal affirmation of ourselves by the people responding positively to our messages, our twitterings, you know, that if we hoot into the jungle and we get hoots back, then it just makes us feel good. So it's as simple as that. So the, the model is around that. It's around creating this continual feedback loop that reinforces you and reaffirms what you've said. Now, this is very compelling for social primates like us. So it's an addiction. Now, technology in itself is neutral. I mean, electricity is neutral. A train is neutral. It's how it gets used then within the systemic context that is occurring. That's the key thing. So a train can transport people for work, for recreation, or to death camps. In itself is neutral. It's how it's utilized. Electricity can turn on light and heat. It can also switch on an electric chair to execute people. Now, some technologies are inherently dangerous, but for the most part. Now, so this capacity to connect human beings across computer networks in itself, it's fine. But the social media, which is a highly privatized, corporate, profit-driven colonization of the internet in order to addict customers capture those customers' internal worlds, their privacy, because essentially what happens once you begin to share is the algorithms are more and more understanding you and using extremely complicated algorithms from behavioral science can predict how you will behave, how you will react, and can start suggesting to you who you should link with, who your friends should be, and effectively predict your opinions, predict what you would like, predict the kind of books you would read. Amazon will say you should read this because we know this is the kind of stuff you would like to read and bloody hell, it probably is true and so on and so forth. And suddenly we find technology no longer acting in a neutral way, but it's self-developing agency and entering into our private space and then directing our consciousness along the tramways that it's suggesting. And then passively, because one of the things that happens with the use of technology is we become increasingly passive in the sense 
subservient to the requirements of the uh, technology, we slowly begin a process of being merged inside the requirements of the various algorithms. Now, this all sounds very dystopian and kind of maybe slightly Luddite. So it's very difficult to critique technology because sometimes people attack you for being kind of old-fashioned. But this is actually the business model. It's not. It's neither a, a Luddite thing nor anything. It just is the way it works from its own proponents. Now, the virus then becomes interesting because the virus, again, is a biological fact and an ecological event signaling ecological disturbance. And when a disturbance occurs in the functioning of the system, the issue then becomes how does the system frame its meaning and which forces immediately step in to frame what's happening and to channel it in a particular direction. So it's not as if there's this big plot and people sat down with a white cat on their knee and dreamt up some dystopian switch. It's just that in the chaos, already existing ideas colonize the moment. This is a little bit like Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. The shock comes, everyone is dislocated, but those who are not shocked and know exactly where they want to go can quickly move in. So technology has occupied the space. And so when people are unable to socially engage, then the obvious alternative is through social media, through the internet. And so now we find these movements that work is now at home, the domestic and workspace, that division has been further eroded Whereas in, at the beginning of industrialism, there was a, a clear domestic space, workspace. Now they're collapsed together. The children are at home. Knowledge is better delivered through computers. In my world of academia and teaching, it's all done online. So what we're doing is we're saying, we're constantly telling people, we're telling them, we're luring them into the online space all the time. It's now a necessity. You can't function. You literally cannot function in our society outside of it. And it's no longer a neutral space because it's, it's drawing you in to itself, but it's not drawing you in externally. It's colonizing your inner self. So it knows your friends, what TV programs you look at, because most of that is done online now by people, the books you're ordering. It's synced with your credit cards, your purchasing, your holidays, all the things you look at, the news type, the type of newspapers you look at, the news feeds. And it's building up these incredibly complex pictures of you more than you know yourself. I mean, I know lots of people in my daughter's generation, they're using online for dating apps because they can't meet otherwise. So even the relationship formation is being delegated, not any longer to like in the quiet man when the matchmaker would come, but to dating apps, which work effectively for people. So they tell you, you might think this is the kind of person you would be attracted to, but we actually know this is the person you would be. And they're more right, probably, because they know you better. So human subjectivity is getting restructured. And the Zoom world is, to me, even symbolically interesting, even what we're doing right now. I'm intrigued by the way it works. We're reduced to our heads, our talking heads. So this is as much physicality as we can present. I am talking, but I'm also seeing myself talking. So I'm both subject, but I'm also an object. So I can see myself speaking back at myself. I'm listening to myself, but I'm also seeing myself as an object in space. I'm seeing other people as well. I can organize how I present myself. I could shade my background or do something with my background. I could decide not to have my camera on. I can decide not to listen to you by just switching you off. I can pretend to have technical problems, so I'm not engaging. So we enter this kind of strange realm of being both present and absent at the one time. It's a new type of presence. I can parcel out my presence. And if I was in a bigger group, so I was at a meeting and there was a lot of people there, or I was a student. I mean, basically, I switch off my camera, I switch on another tab, and I can just do, yes, I can put it on the phone, or 
I can be on YouTube, I can be reading the news, I can be looking at a movie, I can be on Netflix, all at the same time while pretending to be engaging with you and therefore present to you. But you can't be sure that I am. I can be completely absent. And if you catch me out, I can just pretend that my the sound was gone or it was some other problem or my broadband isn't great today and so on. And often even to get into a lot of these things, I'm intrigued by things like where you have to click the little yoke that says, I am not a robot, which I find amazing because really what that's saying is, are you human? That's really what So you're basically saying, yes, I am a human being. I have to affirm my humanity to enter further into the space. But all the time, the technology is learning more and more about us and therefore getting better at managing us. And this is what is the problem. It brings us into these ever fragmented antechambers of our own heads, where we only hear our own thoughts fed back to us all the time. And this is the ultimate end point of the 1960s. The capitalists, the cultural capitalism of the 1960s essentially set out to feed you back your own desires. The 1960s was, if you like, hedonism. It's make love, not war. What you desire is what we will give you. The system's logic is based on your desire. You want this type of clothes. You want that type of shoe. You want that type of coffee. I mean, it used to be we just buy coffee. Maxwell House, grounded, that, that is it. Now it's, there's multiple choices. So your desire is amplified. And the logic of the system is to take your desire and give it back to you. But with technology, we can perfect this because we now genuinely do know your desire. But the problem is we need you to be in a constant state of desire. And therefore, back to your original question, in a state of frustration. Because if I reach a point where I have no more desires and I say, I've enough, the system will collapse. It can't function if people don't want things. It needs people in this constant state of demand. So if we get to a point of enoughness, using Anne Ryan's phrase, the system will disintegrate. So it needs us in this bizarre state of constant desire, with desire always presented as a good thing. If we try to look to the future, and particularly to try and look positively, you know, I always yeah. like to finish positively. But there are a few things you mentioned when we were chatting. The psychology of hope was one thing the need for a loving vision on the left, the position of care, and maybe what is the new happiness? You know, we did talk about living is tough, this whole notion that it's quite tough to live on a planet where things are limited. But can you paint a positive picture out of all that? Like, where are we going that's positive? Yeah, no, I think we can. And I think that's the challenge. One of the difficulties in articulating a new system. So if, we, if I started by saying, you know, the system is beginning to disintegrate and in that case, you have to find a new system or else you put a titanic effort into maintaining the system. So that's the struggle that's going on. The traditional left is not articulating a new system because it's still caught in a way in the language of 19th century labor capital disputes. And it's still understanding change has really been about a rejigging of industrialism so as to favor the worker. But it doesn't yet realize that growth itself and industrialism and anthropocentrism and indeed a lot of the humanist enlightenment tradition is part of the problem. The new system can't be a system based on the head. But for a new system to come into play, we know again from history, a few things have to happen. So there have to be material conditions for it to happen. In other words, systems won't give way unless there's a reason. They're not just going to stop. Feudalism didn't just stop. It, it dragged on slowly got taken over by capitalism, but there's a long overlap between the two. 
So the material conditions have to mean that the old system can't function anymore. We're in that phase now because ecological conditions are making the functioning of our type of capitalism impossible to maintain. So it just won't be possible in the 21st century to keep doing it the way we're doing it. So it will have to change. So there's material. But changing by necessity is grim and miserable and looks like a loss. So the new system to be born has to not only have a better answer to the material circumstances you're in, a better solution, it has to carry with it what we might call eros, desire, a new desire. Because desire is a good thing in human beings, not a bad thing. So we'll be able to take the very desires that fuel our system now and redirect them to an even greater desire, an even higher eros, if you like. And I think what the new left, if you want, has to do is evoke a dream of a new way of being human in the world, which emphasizes old ideas that actually are very pleasurable for human beings, which we naturally love, which is Arcadia, living in a rich, biodiverse world, is a beautiful image for us, where there are trees and birds and animals and butterflies and clean water and waterfalls and rainfall and sunsets and rainbows. We love this. Our biophilia, our era systems are highly responsive to these things. So these are very compelling for us and we like that. And in terms of as humans, we actually really like sharing more than we like consuming. That's an old lesson that capitalism has forgotten. We actually get more dopamine hits when we exchange with each other and when we share with each other and when we cooperate. Because if I have neighbors and friends over to help me do a project around my house, I actually get a lot of pleasure from that. And then I do that for them. So sharing and exchanging and networking, these are very, very pleasurable things for human beings to do. So it's somehow summoning up the desire or the eros of this new civilization, this new way of being human in a pristine planet where we're insulated from, as you say, you know, the difficulties and challenges of living on a planet Earth, which can be difficult. Human beings evolved as social primates, which means our evolutionary adaptation was that any one of us on our own would not succeed, but collectively human beings can do almost anything because we are very, very good at cooperating. And we are extremely good at networking with each other and sharing. That's our absolute number one evolutionary adaptation. It makes us supremely adaptable. So human beings can live in the Arctic and they can live on the equator and everywhere in between because they cooperate very well together and can extract resources from almost any environment that they'll share and exchange skills and so on and knowledge and pass it down through language and learn and be very adaptive. So it isn't a grim future. It's a wonderfully pleasurable future and a future where we don't have to work as much and suffer as much and compete as much and yearn as much and be for I mean this is actually a very utopianly possible future and what we probably need is people who can express that and summon it up and evoke it and begin to live it and once that happens combined with the material pressure points that will force people to look for a new system we will then be in a place of hope but we know from history, the transitions are always very messy and they don't go smoothly and they go a bit forward and a bit backwards. But the other lesson from history is all human systems 100% have collapsed. 
Now that's actually a good story, not a bad story, because it means we keep surviving them. So even, even hugely complex and extremely powerful systems like the Roman Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Persian Empire, they're, they're all gone, but they've been replaced eventually. It took time because people went back to, if you like, the, the foundation for how human beings function, which is cooperating in groups, sharing information, and summoning up through art and music the eros dimensions of being alive. The foundation point for humans is actually a point of well-being. We're good at this, and we quickly go back to it. And we know this from disaster phenomena, even within the 20th century, that in disaster scenarios, people cooperate immediately by default and are actually very good at it and know how to do it and very quickly self-organize to look after each other and are highly empathic to the vulnerable and make sure that the old people and the young people are looked after and safe. This is our natural place. So we're not having to invent any of this. This is just drawing on our basic evolutionary default program. It's perfectly fine. And in this strange way, even the internet can help us because it can allow for this connection. But we do have a problem at the moment. <laughs> we, we just, and let's hope it's a short-term transition problem that sounds very grim and noisy and hostile and loud and worrying. And maybe it'll be like that for quite some time. But medieval mobs with pitchforks tend to be going nowhere ultimately, but they do cause a lot of messing and damage. They're very appealing in the short term because they give you an answer to the anomalies of the system and they help you to make sense of what's going on while maintaining the system. So I think our challenge, like FASTA and other, is again that old FASTA challenge, which is how to think our way to the future. That's essentially what FASTA has always been about is how to think our way to the future, but recognizing that that doesn't mean we have to be the experts in everything. We don't, and we have huge resources from the past to draw. And most people will actually figure it out perfectly fine. They're well equipped to do so. Richard always said that to me. I remember him saying, he said, you know, we will do all our work. No one will pay any attention. Like we'll have seminars, 10 people will turn up and we'll write books and a hundred people will read them. But the point will come when the system begins to disintegrate and our ideas will then be used and mm. they will claim them as their ideas. And he said, that's fine, doesn't matter. But that's our role, he said. Our role is to be there for that moment, to catch the system as it's falling and to pick it up and redirect it. That was Mark Garavan, a lecturer in social care at the Galway Mayo Institute of Technology in the West of Ireland, referring to the ideas of FASTA's co-founder, the late economist Richard Douthwaite. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Please tune in also at the end of February for our next episode. Many thanks to Mark. I guess to Lisha Kelly for her beautiful music on the harp. Mm-hmm.